Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Illuminative On Air. I'm Monica Brain, the series producer. We've got a good one for you this week. Allison Herrera talked with Sean Dean Herrera, no relation. She's Navajo and a champion for change from the Center for Native American Youth. She's been fundraising for Navajo and Hopi families facing the COVID-19 crisis. Allison also talked to her about her work to get out the vote in San Juan County, Utah. Also, Janish Meeting checked in on the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and the growing standoff between the South Dakota Governor Christy Nome and the tribe over the road checkpoints. But first, here's my conversation with Mark Trahant, the editor of Indian Country Today, about this week's big news. Thinking back to this past week, um, what were some of the big highlights, some of the big news stories that you've been thinking about? I guess the big news story that I've been thinking about is what the world is going to look like when people start going back to work. It ranges from really the practical to the philosophical. On the practical side, basic questions such as, for us, can we use a studio? How many people are we going to want in a studio? Will it be shooting a show and then getting out of there? What are the just very basics of what the work environment is going to be? How are we going to structure this going forward so that people mostly work at home? The most recent study I saw was from the T.H. Chan School at Harvard, and it looked at how it thinks COVID will be basically waves through society for the next 24 months. And if you think about how you're going to have on and off for 24 months, how dramatic that is in terms of everything and how you do things, how you shop, how you act, how you get mail. I mean, really very practical questions. On the philosophical, this is one of those moments every century or so where you have an opportunity to rethink what the world looks like after. How can we refashion a society that's less dependent on fossil fuels? Because this crisis is born in climate change and more similar crises will be born in climate change. The data is pretty convincing, and this is just a symptom rather than the actual problem. Uh, the other philosophical ones is trying to get around the idea of um, how it changes a generation. I just read a study that looked at the flu in 1918 and how that entire first generation of children born in 1918 and 19 were several inches shorter than their siblings. And you think about how something that dramatic affected a whole generation of kids. And so now I'm wondering, what's the impact of this going to be on this generation, both the kids who are quarantined and those that are being born uh, when this is all going on? I I think will be really profound. Yeah, I think about that, too, particularly when it comes to education and hearing the stories from Indian country of having to get things online, maybe even bringing hotspots to students so they and laptops just so they can take their final exams, things like that. Have you thought much about what, what opportunities will happen in terms of education in the future and how we could change? Well, and I think um, a good clue, and is what you said, is um, the idea that education is laptop-based to me shows how out of touch education is from the change going on in society. Our publication is completely edited for the mobile phone. And now 75% of our users are either mobile, well, 75% are mobile and another 5% are iPads. And so the use by a computer is only uh, two out of 10. 
and you apply that to education and how many education programs are cell phone based um, you can probably count them on a hand yet that's the most uh, democratic in terms of getting out to the most people in usage the cell phone has become virtually ubiquitous even in Indian country and there are still folks that won't go to a smartphone but in general it's amazing how quickly this technology has been adopted yet it's not being adopted by institutions i think this is a clarion call to do that to say now is the time to make the transition not to computers not to wi-fi but to to a mobile technology Let's talk a little bit about the numbers that you and, and the folks at Indian Country today have been gathering on coronavirus cases. Are you seeing a slowing down of new cases? Are we seeing, what are we seeing? Well, and it's hard to say it directly because it's, a, it's one of those things where it's complicated. And one of the complications is Navajo Nation has done a great job of testing. And they're now testing around 12%. New York City is about 7%. And as you test more people, you're gonna get more positive results. And really every scientist that I know of talks about testing as one of the real important tools. And here we have a community that's just way ahead in that regard. And so in a, in a way, and this sounds really bizarre, but in a way those higher testing, higher infection rates are not necessarily a bad thing. It may be more reflective of reality than other jurisdictions. The disease still has a ways to go. I mean, when you look at the overall population that's been impacted, it's really still extraordinarily small. And until we get to um, much, much higher rates, 50, 60, 70%, we're going to be dealing with the impact of this uh, in a very dramatic way. One of the first tests ahead is what happens during flu season. And I've seen that a lot of the universities are starting to plan for having spring breaks around what they think will be flu peaks so that they can limit contact during that time and try to limit where people are going. Uh, but that's a, kind of one of the things ahead that we have to start con being concerned with because how this interacts with the flu when you have two major illnesses going on, I think could be significant. One of the big things that was in the news this week was that the Navajo Nation, their COVID um, infection rates are in fact, higher than New York and New Jersey. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on, you know, that being mainstream news, you know, where you, where you fall on that. Well, I mean, it's, it's, we're skeptical, and it's for a variety of reasons. The biggest being the Navajo Nation's testing rate is higher than New York City's. And so as a percentage per capita, there should be more. Uh, cases And you have to really give Navajo Nation credit for being ahead of the curve and for basically using its resources to get more testing sooner. And that's a good thing. Um, in terms of the outbreak, though, I don't want to underestimate the impact at Navajo. It's been really severe. Whether it's first, second, or third is irrelevant. It really is severe, and it's widespread. And... Um, and Navajo Nation's not alone. Some of the Pueblos have had infection rates that have been similarly extraordinarily high and are worth watching. In terms of the death rate, um, the death rate is definitely higher. And so much of that is because the chronic conditions that many Native people have going into it uh, are those that are just exacerbated by COVID. And it makes it much uh, more difficult to fight off infection. Do you think tribes have enough resources to do, you know, broad testing 
not just uh, testing of people who are showing symptoms? I think tribes are actually ahead of other governments in that regard, and not just tribes, but the Indian health system. So, and I'll just use myself as an example because I had um, pain and of course in your mind, you start thinking immediately COVID and ended up in the emergency room and they admitted me to the hospital. And what was interesting is how quickly protocols went into place and how efficient they were. I was in a separate room on a ward in case I did have COVID and they had the test that day and had it back by 4 a.m. the next morning, uh, then moved me to another ward in the hospital. I was just amazed at how methodical they were, how well prepared they were, how they were doing this was just down. They knew what they were doing in a really uh, inspiring way. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the other things that have been in the news in terms of tribes. You have the Cheyenne River Sioux and Oglala Sioux tribe. The governor, the governor of South Dakota, is asking them to take down their checkpoints. Are we headed for um, a sovereignty showdown? I, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. I think the governor is so far out of her league on this one. There is a treaty right that is about as clear as you can get. It's been upheld before. Tribes, a lot of tribes in the West particularly, but in this case, both tribes, have very clear language about exclusion. And um, the governor just is trying to grasp at something that really I don't think is rooted in the law. I was also reading an article about some casinos near uh, in the San Diego area that are, are opening back up or already open. Officials in from California refused to comment on it and just kept saying that tribes are sovereign and I'm not going to comment on this. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, I mean, it's interesting how California officials especially were very, um, some were making private calls saying don't do this or just wait a few days and others were out front saying and particularly san diego county saying uh please don't do this and then asking the feds to come in folks are concerned and they i mean it really is complicated by the fact that tourism and gambling are indian country's largest economic driver and to have them disappear like that is extremely unsettling to everybody both in the county level and the tribal level because it's just created so many jobs that are dependent on that. And the crazy thing is in virtually every instance when the casinos open, there's a line of people wanting to get in. So it's not like uh, adults aren't making a decision about this. Um, can casinos be safe? I, I mean, it really is a question across the board. Can any part of the economy be safe and what will it take? And Right now, there's a lot of conflict in terms of uh, the actual science and in terms of how you mitigate something like this. Uh, I think probably a lot of this will be tested and folks will see how they do and you'll get an outbreak and then folks might back down or they might get through it fine with the protocols in place. That's certainly the goal. We hear a lot of conflicting information about, you know, what's safe, models, things like that. You know, it was revealed just recently that President Trump is taking hydrochloroquine. I'm just curious your thoughts on where we can go to get reasonable information, to get correct information about this. You know, what should be our guiding star on these these issues? I mean, that's the good thing is there's really good sources ranging from now it's not much hated the World Health Organization, which has uh, had really good science on this. The CDC has had great science on this. Some of the higher universities have had great science on this, Harvard and some of the others. 
Uh, some of this is confusing because we just don't know enough yet. For example, there's a study today from Hong Kong involving rats, and it says that masks have an 80% uh, rate of stopping the infection. And almost the second the story came out, the study was not peer-reviewed, and so that was a lower threshold. But the University of Minnesota came out with a, a critique of it saying, hey, wait a minute, what we know about COVID is that it is droplet spread, and unless you're wearing an N95 mask, droplets are gonna get through most cloth masks. And so even in something that narrow, you can see how different parts of the scientific community are kind of zooming in on certain aspects. That said, the president's treatment and some of the statements that come out of the White House task force just don't meet any scientific test. And this is one. And it's clear that because the government itself is warned not to do what the president is suggesting. Mark, looking ahead, uh, what will you be following in the next week? I think we're really going to watch and see how the economy starts to pick up. Uh, one personal thing that I just really want to zoom in on is to look at the tribes that have zero infection rates and start asking people why. What was, is it just lucky or is there something going on that uh, allowed that to happen? You can check out Mark's work at IndianCountryToday.com. And now let's hear from Allison Herrera. Hello, Shandine Herrera. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. I understand that you're helping to bring food and water to Navajo families. Can you tell me about that experience and, and how are people holding up there? Back in March, I became a lead volunteer with the Navajo Hopi COVID relief effort, um, started by former Attorney General Ethel Branch, who is also my mentor. I got involved in March as a, a Utah lead, as well as the call center coordinator. So really just on the back end, coordinating distribution sites and pickups, but also managing our hotline where community members can call in um, and put in a help request with us. And then on the Utah side, uh, I did a distribution here in Monument Valley, and we served 312 households. We have now served over 4,300 households in 50 communities on the Navajo Nation, as well as five of the 12 Hopi villages. You know, we've been able to accomplish a lot in, in terms of fundraising as well. We've raised now upwards of $3.7 million, and so all of that goes into to purchasing the items we need um, and supporting, um, you know, just the operations that go into getting all the food here. In 2018, you did some work on voting rights in San Juan County, Utah. Why was this needed and who were you working with? I kind of became involved with just voting rights issues. I, I was still a student at Duke. You know, and when I come home on my breaks, we, you know, were having a big election coming up in, in San Juan County. And when I was home, you know, I would do as much as I could to advocate and just reach out to relatives and friends and community members to make sure that they're registered to vote. If they're not, share them, share information with them on how to. And whenever we would have voter registrations, um, you know, I would go there and volunteer and get people to go there. So it really was just about being publicly being an advocate. Um, I think... A lot of times people just really were unaware, um, you know, that an election was taking place or how to vote. And the big issue here I saw is we're right on the border of Utah and Arizona. So a lot of folks have Arizona licenses. And so they weren't sure if they could still vote in the county elections here because of that. So just really like 
you know, taking the time to talk with people and just helping them. I don't think that there's a lot of that in our area. And then, you know, with the language barriers, um, this is where the Rural Utah Project really came in to our community and just catalyzed so much change in terms of awareness um, and voting and just, you know, they did, they launched a really great project where they're doing Google Plus codes to identify households to make voting easier in terms of like knowing where people are going, make sure they're getting information they need. With the San Juan County elections, we were able to mobilize so many people to become aware and to understand the importance of voting and just learning the history of voting, especially for Native people. Utah was one of the last states to grant Native people the right to vote. And now is the first time we've had a majority Navajo County Commission. Um, and, you know, this is a county that's majority Navajo. Our county commission is finally reflective of its, you know, constituents. And so that was a tremendous win for us. It showed people, you know, just how much agency they have in terms of contributing to leadership. You know, a lot of people don't feel the need to vote because they don't think it'll make a difference. But in this case, it literally did. Can you just tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing on the census? I co-hosted a edu census education event here in Monument Valley at our Welcome Center. So um, it was just like an all-day event where people could come through and, you know, grab the free meal, but also learn about the census, um, why is it important, how do you do it, um, and also we were signing up um, community members to work as census enumerators uh, because we were really stressing how important it was to have our own people take the responsibility to count us. Peeling back the layers of just being uncomfortable with outside people coming in to do the census. There was a lot of issues with that in past, um, the past census. But unfortunately with COVID, we can't, you know, obviously do any of those events. So a lot of it has just kind of been halted and it's been a little difficult to try and keep the momentum up in terms of you know making sure people are aware of census and understand that they need to complete it but again with the digital divide that's really difficult uh, it kind of worries me because as an enumerator you know I was driving like in the middle of nowhere where I knew people lived and making sure I delivered their census packets to them and marking them down in our system it, it's a little worrisome to me to think that you know a lot of folks could potentially be missed again because we can't do that in the field work that was really necessary you know do you have any worries that COVID-19 is going to impact the upcoming election when you live in a community like Barnett Valley or anywhere pretty much in the Navajo Nation that's so rural, you know, things like voting really do take the backseat because before COVID, like day-to-day -day lives was, you know, hauling water, chopping wood, um, you know, traveling four to six hours round trip to get groceries. It, it's hard to really convince people the importance of something, you know, that seems so far-fetched like voting. I just feel like it's a really unique situation to be in. You know, the real nature of the reservation, the lack of access to broadband, lack of infrastructure. But now, you know, with COVID, we're in a, a really strict shelter in place. We have 57 hour weekend lockdowns. Like there is not very much movement. So just to try to throw in, you know, also remember to vote. <laughs> That's, you know, a, a lot for a lot of families who are dealing with, you know, so much right now. Shandine Herrera, thank you so much for talking to me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. 
Allison is the Indigenous Affairs Reporter at KOSU. Now let's hear from Janice Schmieding on the growing fight over tribal checkpoints in South Dakota. Last week, South Dakota State Governor Kristi Noem sent a letter to the Oglala and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes stating that she would take legal action if the tribes did not remove their COVID-19 travel checkpoints within 48 hours. The checkpoints, established to monitor and ultimately prevent the spread of COVID-19 to the people on tribal land, sit at roadways going into and out of the reservation. Cheyenne River Tribal Chairman Harold Frazier responded with his own letter to Governor Noem, in which he stated that they will not remove the checkpoints and that the tribe will, quote, not apologize for being an island of safety in a sea of uncertainty and death. I called up my auntie out in Cheyenne River and asked her to patch me through, which is how I caught up with David Nelson, enrolled member of and emergency commander for the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Can you explain, David, kind of the purpose of the checkpoints um, around Cheyenne River, um, the purpose and kind of what they look like? Pretty much uh, the the checkpoints were established for us to uh, control access in and out of our reservation for individuals that may have been coming in from the outside to uh, from what we're calling hot spots or community spread zones where there's been more than one case that they can't uh, identify what, where it came from. And then for us to uh, limit the, the people leaving the reservation is because if they're going to one of those areas and if they're not going to follow the protocol we've set out, then we have denied what is called a permit to, to enter those areas unless it's a stream medical emergency. And what is the permit like? How does one access a permit to either get out or get in? Um, they can apply for a permit. Um, we have a, uh, I believe it's crctcovidupdates.com on uh, a web page. And they can access that and uh, fill out the permit online. And then they can either email it or fax it back in. And then when they just, you know, they approach um, your team at the checkpoints, they just show the permit to the person that they're that uh, yes, stops they them. They would show their permit, the, their license plate and permit number will be taken down. Um, from that point, what will happen is um, they're allowed to to exit, and then upon return, the same process will apply. Um, they may ask him a few questions, you know, like, where did you go? Do you feel sick? Mm-hmm. How are drivers um, reacting to the checkpoints as they come through or as they leave? You know, have you gotten any strong reactions either way? Well, initially it was, it, it seemed like it was burdensome for the dri- the traveler. And and it's just probably because we slowed down their, their pace for the day for, minutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them are, you know, they just pull up there, they answer the questions if they have any. The checkpoint people take their information down and then they're allowed to proceed. That sounds so easy. <laughs> it is. It's very easy. At the checkpoints, we have, um, before entering the reservation, um, we have signs that are, are digital signs that are set up and it says COVID checkpoint ahead. It's a COVID health checkpoint is what we're doing. Um, all vehicles must stop. And then at the site, um, for at night, we have a, a generator light station, um, a container where they have the 
individuals have uh, shelter there. If they want to store things inside there, there's a metal shed that's available for them. Mm. And then we have the stop signs and the prepared to stop signs uh, coming from both directions and cones in the middle. And they ask you the questions when they're done, they move the cone. And like I said, it's, it doesn't take very long at all. Yeah. It seems really efficient. And recently, uh, last week, Governor Christy Noem, she's criticized the checkpoints, and she gave that 48-hour deadline to remove them. Um, what was your and your team's response to her demands? Um, you know, that was the chairman's call, and, and we're continuing to operate as normal. Uh, we have them in place. I mean, the reason for the checkpoints is to keep this virus from getting on here as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're doing everything we can. We did have one case that was travel-related. That individual since the, um, went through the protocol, was in the hospital, and now out in their home recovering. And So it uh, seems important that the, that the protocols stay in place at this time still. Yeah, yes, I, I don't have it in front of me, but on our webpage, there are the different levels of uh, phases that we are in. At the last one, because we did have a, tra a travel spread, we did go into what's called phase three, and that's that kicked in the curfew and um, other things. Uh, they'll probably reevaluate that after this lady comes off her, her additional curfew. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, again, up to administration. And it seems like the tribe is, you know, really rallying behind uh, these measures. And not just Cheyenne River, but um, a lot of tribes just around the nation are looking to this as a great model for what could be happening um, to kind of prevent those travel spreads, like you said. Yes, and, and like I said, and... And surprisingly so, we've had a lot of the residents here, uh, I'm not saying all of them, but we've had a lot of them that are that are supporting these efforts because they don't want to see loved ones or themselves or anybody getting sick as well. Of course. Well, um, thank you so much for uh, giving me time today, David, and also thank you to you and, and your team and the tribe for protecting our people. I appreciate that. Thank you. You can also check out Jana's podcast, Woman of Size, anywhere you get podcasts. This is Heather Ray from Illuminative's team. Closing out this week's episode, we have spoken word from Tazba Rose Chavez, a poet, filmmaker, television writer, and daughter of the Bishop Paiute and Navajo Nations. Beauty is not a label we place on the world. The world is the result of speaking beautifully. When you look out across the length of open roads, between rolling hills and plateaus, know that you are our home. You are breath and blood. You are skin and touch. A person who deserves to pursue as many thirsts as it takes determine your worth. You hold forests in your limbs. You have the creeks and the river banks in your veins. And the air in your lungs is your bloodline's breath, drawing into you thousands of years of certainty. You 
are the cerulean vigor of our roots, with the depth of canyons behind your ribs, and the distance to the sky in your eyes is close enough to cut patterns out of the clouds and stitch the stars together as they rise up from behind your nose. When I caress your profile against the high noon sun, it's to remind you that you're different because you've always been the same. Stitch me to my origins. Tell me the story of our beginning again. How beautiful to never search for who you are, even if you think you're not always sure. Because no one can disturb the way prayers are the verbs that have shaped our world, or the worth that runs blood vessel deep to keep us in sync with the roots of our herringbone reach. Everything you need is here in the millenniums of certainty living in your mirror. Thank you for listening to episode five of Illuminative On Air. If you like what you heard today, please consider giving us five stars and reviewing us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Heather Ray. I'm the series producer, and Lincoln Cornshucker is the associate producer. Sound engineering is by Marino Spencer. Music from Samantha Crane. The podcast would not be possible without the support of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, the Shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux Community, and the Macy Family Foundation. We're back next week with another episode of Illuminative On Air. Wear your mask, love your elders. We'll see you soon.